think about the need states and the frustrations of the chooser and user of this. Let's say the nurse. Boy, what problems are you solving for her or him? Some of those are emotional. All the challenges that are thrown on them day in and day out. Emotional brands isn't just going to the, as far as you possibly can in terms of the actual end user of this and saying that we're going to save their lives. <laughs> but when you look at your stakeholder and you really think about the, the problem you're solving and the impact you're having on their day, you will find terrain there that is uh, absolutely possible to sort of anchor into. Welcome to a new year and a new episode of MedTech Mindset. I'm your host, Dan Henrich, and I'm Director of Marketing at SmithWise. This episode's topic is one that's near and dear to my heart because we're going to be talking about branding and marketing for MedTech Ventures. Now, if you're an engineer or a clinician or something technical and far from the world of marketing, and you think this episode won't be relevant to you, hear me out, because we're talking not about the more superficial elements of branding but about a brand as a distillation of the value that your company offers to the market. So this topic should actually be extremely relevant to anybody involved in an early-stage venture and building a strategic go-to-market plan, whether you work in marketing or not. My guest this episode is Bill Gullen. Bill is president of Finch Brands, a real-world brand consultancy in downtown Philadelphia. And he's also the host of the Finch podcast called Real World Branding with Bill Gullen. So I'll suggest to all of our listeners that if you enjoy Bill's insights here, you should head over to finchbrands.com or wherever you get your podcasts and check out Bill's show as well. So let's jump into my conversation with Bill, recorded a few weeks back at the end of 2018. Some of our listeners, Bill, might be wondering why are we talking about branding for kind of a med tech audience? Sure. Um, and so I want to you know just frame what do we mean by, by branding because I'm sure you have this experience even just... Uh, as a marketer, people tend to have outside the world of marketing a pretty narrow definition of what marketing and what branding is. Right, and uh, and they they think of of you know Mad Men ad agencies as as what marketing is, mm-hmm. and, and branding is maybe you know logos and palette, right. you know, color palettes. So, what do we mean when we when we talk about you know the world of branding? Well, there's a lot of similarities with Mad, Mad Men in terms of how I look and how I behave. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, I'm glad you asked. Thanks for having me. The, the brand, branding as a discipline is often misunderstood, and in part that's because the word is thrown around fairly loosely and liberally. Uh, we define branding to be sort of the sum total of how you think and what you do to assert difference uh, mm-hmm. and provide uh, uh, expectation uh, mm-hmm. of, of what an experience is going to be like. So that includes colors and names and logos and packaging and websites. Those are artifacts right. of a brand. But, but branding as an overall discipline uh, is, is a much larger concept than simply uh, that which emerges from a branding process or, or are things that you can pick up or hold or say or read. So how does the, how does the process of um, you know, coming up with those tangible aspects of your brand that people are going to associate you know, and think of as your brand, how do you go about um, tying those into kind of your, your deeper sense of identity as an organization? Well, that's a good question. And, and one of the premises of the question is a very important idea, which is that branding is, again, not just a, a graphic designer's set of choices for what might look pleasant. It's based on a deeper system of belief, 
uh, a sense of purpose, a sense of direction, a sense of difference, a sense of value uh, that ultimately is expressed creatively. And so when we talk about branding, one of the things that's really important um, and, and often where our processes start, though not exclusively, is that sort of definition of purpose. Mm-hmm. And so we spend a lot of our time working with, uh, with leaders of, of companies on concepts like vision, mission, and values. Right. Those might not typically be associated with, with branding. Branding is not just the stuff that appears sort of above the waterline. In fact, in many ways, the, the hardest and most important element of branding is what exists most deeply but beneath the water. Mm-hmm. And so that often strategically and sort of emotionally comes from that core purpose and sense of the why that everyone talks about. And then it shows itself uh, through all the communications and touch points that are both internal and external. By the way, we like to say at Finch Brands that the best brands are built inside out. And so we spend a lot of time on the inside piece, whether it's working with organizations that are going through some M&A activity or some transition or launch or whatever the case may be. The ambassadors or the carriers of the brand, the the livers of the brand story are going to be a team, client-focused or not, product-focused or not. Those are going to be uh, those folks who really need to understand and buy into what it is that we're sort of all doing here and what we stand for and what makes us different. And if they get that and have been in some maybe efficient yet inclusive way co-authors of that, there is uh, both a muscle memory but also a sort of a concerted and deliberate um, impact on the work they do every day and consequently what the company puts out into the world. So it's kind of a chicken and egg situation, right, Of in terms of constructing a brand as an expression of your corporate identity and culture and values. Um, are your employees that way because you, we've said this is how our organization is going to be or, or do you attract and, and seek out people who are already part of that? It's a great question and the answer is both. Uh, in the early stages and for those of your listeners who are sort of in entrepreneurial situations whether it's a an idea and a couple of people or, or early stage companies, often leadership and co-founders and sort of early uh, leaders of building a product or whatever are true believers and are there uh, for right. some common sense of opportunity, yes, but also, but also purpose. So there is a, uh, a need to kind of define and memorialize that, document that. Um, what, often what's in the hearts and souls often are greatest service to an organization like that is to help sort of extract it and package it in a way that everyone can kind of act on. However, to the premise, again, of the question, these core principles that underlie brands also underlie culture. And thus, the best organizations are those that into the hiring and onboarding and training and rewarding process of how teams are built as companies grow those core principles, be it values or, or sort of other components of, of who the company is, have to insinuate themselves into these core processes that have to do with people and have to do with culture. So often for early stage organizations, there is a process to develop and document those core beliefs mm-hmm. and then uh, to uh, sort of imbue everything that comes after and hiring and training and a lot of that's important what comes after uh, with, with those core sets of precepts. Another thing often where this is really put to the test is, I mean, at least here at Finch, we work a lot with companies and brands that are in transition, and that often means how do you integrate a a company that you've acquired? How do you make 
uh, sort of choices and how do you educate new members of the team who maybe for a couple of years have been glaring across the trade show floor at you right. and now all of a sudden they're part of you. <clears throat> how do you, in a really quick shorthand sort of pro-enrollment kind of way, yeah. engage these folks? And so that, you know, often you, by growing you earn the right for this to be challenging. Uh, and so one of the, I think the topics we're going to get into is, and it may be surprising for someone in my position to, to urge restraint on the part of <laughs> entrepreneurs when it comes to time and investment associated with branding in the early stages of a business. But when you reach a level of scale where these, this, you know, one of the core elements of smart branding is consistency. There's a reason why UPS trucks aren't all different colors, right? <laughs> now, when, so, so consistency right. means that these internal lessons are well, well taught and well received. And so often... When brands grow and when there's another ring of employees outside of that core sort of founder base is where this becomes even more important culturally to kind of document these things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, all, that's all. I think all those thoughts are really important for um, those members of our audience who are early on in their, in their stages of, uh, of developing their company, defining their identity. Often, I think we're dealing with, um, you know, med tech startups who have maybe, there may be most commonly maybe two people, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and those people have a very um, well-defined, well, um, well but maybe not well-articulated or, or a yeah. common understanding of who they are and where they want to go. But as they start growing their team, that doesn't always um, come to the forefront or it's not always, they're not always putting that at the very um, beginning of their conversations to right. say, here's who we are when you're, when you're joining us, or here's who we, we think we want to be. Yeah. Um, so I think you, marketed and marketer, you and I could, could talk about that all day, but um, <laughs> maybe let's dive into some of these other, other questions that we, we outlined. One thing I'll say, though, and yeah. just, just to, be, to put a really fine point on it and then underline it and then bold it and then italicize it, I, all these answers are situational, Dan. I mean, depending on capitalization, depending on go-to-market strategy, depending on, you know, all. So with that caveat, generally speaking, it is not in the interest of early stage, in my opinion, early stage one or two person shops, even if they've raised uh, friends and family, even if they've raised Series A, whatever, to plow a ton of resources into branding. Right. What they could do or should do is maybe have a trusted advisor in the form of a firm or, or even uh, just a sort of a mentor to the business help maybe mediate some of these conversations, help maybe build some frameworks around mm-hmm. what's our first vision mission, you know, how do we do that? And, and certainly you want your market-facing website, you want your investor and, and client pitch deck to be really well integrated, to be consistent, and to be reasonably sharp. Uh, but beyond that, there are better uses of proceeds, yeah. in, in my opinion, most often when it comes, you know, than, uh, than plowing a ton of money into having the best branding without a minimally viable product or sure. with a bunch of vapor or with a lot of things still to be untangled because that's the thing about that stage. There's a lot, you know, when it comes to target markets, when it comes to how stakeholders are defined, when it comes right. to zigging and zagging, everything changes. And so other than that kind of core sense of purpose and maybe the development of a look and feel and personality at the very sort of early stages, you just don't want to have to bother with that and, and, and tie up your resources in that when it's all going to change anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you may have then just sort of answered what we, what we talked about as the next question in terms of when is the right time to start worrying about branding. But um, 
when's the right time to start worrying about maybe those mission, vision, values underlying parts. So I think a lot of our listeners, you don't have to sell them on the fact that it's maybe too early to plow a lot of money into, yes. the, pro- into the process. But what should they have done, you know, even at the very early stages of their company before they start growing their team from a yeah. organizational identity underlying you know, future branding standpoint? I would not plow a ton of money into it, but I would certainly think about vision, mission, values from day one. I would certainly among a, even a very small self-contained team of, of founders and, and sort of early stage team members, I would certainly think through, again, not, not be paralyzed by it, but think through and document a best guess on vision, which is sort of that North Star, what's our mm-hmm. purpose? More the internal. The power of what we do. Mission, which right. is sort of the high-level answer to how we do it, and values, which is these are the norms and behaviors that we want to encourage within our culture. Uh, among the many things that we could ask people to do, these are three or four or five that we think are essential to building the type of company that we want to. That's important to get done. It's also important early on uh, to get an effective market-facing website done. Now, the good thing is with, with SaaS web options like Squarespace and others, you don't need a big dev team and you really don't need right. a big design team. These are fairly easy to do, so you're able to, to control costs. Uh, so I think those are things that you really do want to think about early. And you really want to engage those sort of true believer inner ring types of folks into conversations like that. You probably want to do the best you can on naming. And I don't mean best you can hiring some crazy naming firm to go through 37 rounds of, of ideas. But, I mean, you know, you should name with an eye toward not, not just the, you know, your neighbor's dog who you happen to like. But, I mean, name with an eye toward conveying something about right. what you're building. Uh, but when it comes to the larger stories, I think the moment when... You really probably need to think about and invest in that is when you are going to market with scale. And that doesn't necessarily mean hundreds of thousands of people sorts of scale. But when the meetings that you're taking are a little bit less about, hey, you can be a development partner. This is what we're working on. What do you think? And more about, I want you to buy this. I want to transact with you. And the, the more that those types of conversations are both dominating your investments in terms of hiring and sales and marketing and also just how you're going to sort of evaluate your own performance, that's when you kind of need to start getting this stuff right or yeah. right enough. Yeah, and that's sort of when not having it is going to very start to Correct. clearly impact the results of those Correct. conversations, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so let's talk specifically about, about uh, medtech and healthcare. You've worked with a lot of um, healthcare-related clients, um, and I'm sure you've, you've encountered this you know, as marketers, we're always told that we need to humanize our brands, especially if yeah. it's a if it's a business to business brand, or especially if you're doing something that's you know not very sexy, right? You need to find a way to connect emotionally on some level to uh, to your your stakeholders. Mm-hmm. I think what often comes out of that in the healthcare space is a broad claim that companies make that they're really patient centric, yes. right? Um, but if everybody's just saying that, then then you know your humanization sort of maybe falls flat, and uh, and it becomes very generic, and and um, you're not really differentiating yourself right. at all, right? So how can how can med tech uh, players, how can can folks in the startup realm define their brand in a way that's both you know humanizing, but uh, but not overly broad. Yeah, great question. I, I have a blizzard of thoughts, so please <laughs> help help me keep them structured. The first thought is 
an old adage that, again, marketer to marketer is probably something you've heard a hundred times, and I've heard a hundred times, but continues to have the most profound impact on me and acts as a check in, in terms of my own direction and the work we're doing with clients, which is, and I forget who said it, uh, Professor Levitt said it, which is that people don't want to buy a quarter-inch drill, they want a quarter-inch hole. Mm-hmm. Okay? What that is imploring us to do as marketers is to focus less on features and more on benefits. So part of appealing to and remembering to sort of master the emotional and rational sides of our stakeholders, uh, and they always, people are people, so there's always a rational and emotional piece to this, is to remember to communicate through the lens of benefits, not product features. And because of the fact in MedTech, many of your most uh, high potential founders are coming at this with product knowledge and as engineers and are approaching this and that's their comfortable place. That's right. where their soul resides. It is particularly important that people like that are remembering to talk about the whole, not the drill. Now, you're right. This whole, hey, I'm making this device that the patient will never know by name or identify by name. Yet I've read somewhere that I need for this brain to be emotional, so I'm going to talk about saving the world. No, you're right. There's a disconnect there that falls flat. It's cringy. It's treacly. It isn't something that's going to connect. But by goodness, if you are selling through, let's just take a medical center, and you think about the need states and the frustrations of the chooser and user of this, let's say the nurse. Boy, what problems are you solving for her or him? What are the things that day in and day out are areas that really motivate and constrain him or her? Some of those are emotional. Mm-hmm. I mean, nurses who, and again, I'm over overgeneralizing here, but if, if let's say you're, you're dealing with nurses, head nurses and their team at a at an assisted living facility, when you think about it and you really go through and build a map of sort of the journey that they deal with day in and day out, all the touch points with their patients, with their colleagues, with administrators, all the challenges that are thrown on them day in and day out, and you talk to a couple of them and you understand what deeply frustrates them and you really hopefully have hit on a problem that you're solving through your product, there's incredible terrain to make that emotional. And so emotional brands isn't just going to as far as you possibly can in terms of the actual end user of this and saying that we're going to save their lives. (laughs) That's a recipe for not connecting. But when you look at your stakeholder, sort of in some cases as a complex web of stakeholders, and you really think about the the problem you're solving and the impact you're having on their day and on their sense of themselves and on their sense of their own sort of performance and efficacy, you will find terrain there that is uh, absolutely possible to sort of anchor into. So in the med tech realm, even if you don't touch the end consumer and you don't want to run the risk of saying, oh, we make the world a better place, or what you're dealing is sort of definitively unsexy, you're helping someone have a better day right. and get a better outcome. And it's important for you to get your finger on what that is. Yeah. Hey, listeners, a quick break here to remind you that MedTech Mindset is a production of SmithWise, a medical product development firm with offices in Boston and Philadelphia. If you have a med tech project you need help with, a topic we should cover on this podcast, or a guest you think we should invite, head over to smithwise.com and use the contact us page to let us know. So as sort of a follow-up to that, how can brands um, know how to strike the right balance between being really aspirational in what they claim, you know, in making, you know, making somebody's day better, uh, 
or saving their lives right. uh, without kind of like overextending themselves and, and laying claim to something that they really haven't earned. I'll sort of piggyback on what I said earlier because this may not be a satisfying sort of how-to answer, but the, the, the best way not to do it is not to do it in this case. <laughs> uh, if you have a clear sense of how your stakeholders live and work and what they value and uh, where they need allies um, and the role that you're playing in being that ally in a certain sphere, in a certain sector, if you really, really know that well and you've been able to sort of articulate, again, rationally and emotionally uh, the value that you create for them or, or the problems that you solve for them, you will uh, and you should always resist temptation to uh, claim uh, to be a savior in areas where you're not, but you should be able to calibrate that message pretty effectively if you have a pretty good sense of how they live and what they do. I'll give mm-hmm. you an example we've been working on uh, a branding process and uh, for a company that's mind-blowingly amazing. That may be hyperbole, but we like them very much. We respect them very much. Called, They were called Belmont Instrument. The rebranding is Belmont Medical Technologies. They, their sort of flagship product, which is known in the ER as the Belmont, mm-hmm. um, is this sort of temperature regulation, the rapid infuser that helps regulate temperature when it comes to blood transfusions and get rid of the bubbles and other things. So, mm-hmm. I mean, this is literally life-saving, yeah. but it is a tool for critical care uh, providers to save lives, and there's a temptation because the tool is life-saving and because you want to sort of inspire the internal workforce and because you want the market to sort of be aware of the impact that you have. There's a, there's a temptation to say that this product alone saves lives, and maybe it does, but it made more sense from our perspective and theirs to really nestle into the degree to which we support critical right. care heroes in saving lives and enhancing outcomes. To, to come to market with confidence and humility simultaneously was the right answer for them, and I think it generally is when it comes to medtech. Yeah. So is kind of key there, it seems like, is making your, maybe not maybe not your ultimate customer, but your stakeholders the hero of the story, right? In and, many cases, that's right. And yes. your product is often a means of them, you know, accomplishing, you know, accomplishing that, that feat, right? In, that is uh, a high percentage of the time, a, a viable and smart, Strategic yeah. direction, yes. Yeah. Okay. So that's kind of a good segue into uh, another question I had for you, which is, uh, you know, you, you alluded to, not alluded to, you talked about the importance of understanding the ins and outs of your users and your stakeholders and the importance of research underlying your your branding and your messaging and your identity. Yeah. Uh, a lot of our listeners are very early on in their in their process. They might be thinking about, you know, what they want their brand ultimately to be or to mean or how they're going to communicate their message. But they don't have a product yet, let alone customers or, you know, these other stakeholder relationships that ultimately they hope will come later. Mm -hmm. What advice can you offer to people in terms of doing that broad research when you don't have those relationships in place? You can't call up your customer and say, hey, can I come, come, you know, observe you for a day? there's... Thankfully, there are many, many different ways today to do or to begin the process of having those types of interactions with folks that in the olden days might have necessitated that you pay for it. Uh, Use social media to network to nurses, for example, in your uh, just relationship base. Take people to coffee. Uh, I would imagine most of, of the founders who listen to this have some connection somewhere in the you know, in the value chain. So they don't have a, a customer to survey, perhaps, but they have a concept, then, and they have a mentor, and they have 
the ability to network their way to have just a couple of really deep conversations, that can be enough. Mm-hmm. There's no need, you know, market research, so to speak, you know, we're in this political season, the midterms just happened, and everyone's looking at the polls, right? The reason the, the polls are accurate, sometimes down to a couple of percentage points, is because they do them with a statistically significant respondent base. They do them with enough volume that they know. Right. But good luck funding that. Yeah, good luck. So, but, but I mean, in this case, all you need is a directional sense. Plus, if we're talking about these branding topics, we're looking for depth and texture. We're not looking for a margin of error level of sort of right. statistical validation. And so the best way to do this is to have a series of conversations with folks that you've networked to, take them to coffee, buy them a gift card, whatever, and benefit from the depth and texture of having a palms up, open conversation to understand what their world is like. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, at the same time, there are other ways to do this. Yes, social media, but all of these places have trade organizations. Many, you know, all, all of these occupations do. Right. Uh, often, in, depending on where you live, you may have a, a university uh, nearby that's offering undergrad or grad level degrees in X, Y, and Z. You talk to faculty. You talk to grad students who are doing rotations. You can, you can if you have a little bit of energy, uh, certainly roll up your sleeves and at, at very minimal cost have conversations uh, of, of this sort that will be helpful not necessarily in validating you know within a two decimal place margin of error that something that you believe is right or wrong but in providing the the texture and the depth with which to sort of build these maps of experience and build uh, brand content that has power and meaning and is directionally valid so mm-hmm. you don't you don't need to a paralysis by analysis research process that spends the entire angel round that you've raised and, and exhausts you, and now you've learned something, but you have nothing else. Uh, right. You don't need to do that anymore. Right. And really, hopefully, um, I've, I've always sort of felt like as a marketer, in a lot of ways, my job is easy if what I'm marketing has been developed correctly. Yes, right? that's true. Yeah. <laughs> if... if uh, if the team that is that I that has developed the product I'm selling or the or put together the service package I'm selling has done that with market knowledge, then you know branding and messaging and all that sort of thing should come should be a natural extension of that, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is hopefully those conversations and those interactions are already happening and informing all of what comes prior to hanging sure. your shingle. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, but so. that that said, I mean, entrepreneurs have to make calls, and uh, again, there's zigging and zagging in that in that process, and there's probably some choices that you make at either at the product level or at the pitch level or whatever it is uh, that's based on incomplete information, and you do your best to to kind of get there, and that those hypotheses get refined over time, and it certainly makes sense to make this level of exposure to the marketplace a uh, persistent and perpetual. Uh, component of of the growth of a, of a concept and to continue to bring ideas and concepts back to this sort of base of folks who, who can react to them uh, through the lens of their own professional experience and, and the needs that they have day in and day out. So I agree with you that these these companies are built brick by brick and ideally good choices now result in better outcomes later. Uh, but one shouldn't fret that every choice they've made uh, doesn't have to be perfect for the company to be successful. You just have to do your best um, and then continually refine the approach. Right. Yeah. I guess what I mean is hopefully you didn't get to market with a product that you haven't already really established the need for and the the value of, you know, within your own process of of developing it and funding the development 
thereof, right? <laughs> it's true. And I mean, if you have investors, uh, they're, you know, a lot of people are kicking the tires on this thing. And a lot of people are assessing, in addition to their respect for you, which is probably, you know, palpable and important to this, um, they're assessing what the market opportunity is and whether it sort of clicks or connects for them. And so by virtue of building a company, even in the very early stage, there are people who have, uh, you know, been put in a position to sort of evaluate whether they think you're on the right track. And so I guess there's perhaps wisdom in, uh, with each incremental opportunity that you have to put this in front of somebody who's, who has good judgment and, and some level of experience. Um, you know, the, the closer you come to knowing that you're onto something. Sure, sure. Forgive the emergency vehicles. Oh, in the back hey, of it's part. It's of, not for us. It's part right. of life in the big city. If you can hear <laughs> the the uh, emergency vehicles in the background, we're recording from <laughs> from Finch's studios today. I and, hope everybody's uh, okay. Right, and uh, there's some uh, there's some city noises. Um, so let's talk about kind of uh, briefly about the the process of of naming both yes. company naming and, and product naming. Um, that's a that's a really painful process in my experience. Can be, yeah. Uh, and the larger the the group is that's making this decision, the more painful the process may be. Though yep. I guess on the other hand, the more input and reactions you, you get. Um, what's the right way for for you know a startup to go about the naming process? Say just naming their company, or yeah. maybe naming their product that is the name of their company, right. or vice versa. Many are, yeah. Um, you know, is it the yeah. two founders? You know, sitting sitting in a room alone, or you know, what, when does you know when's the right time to have that conversation? And when should you reevaluate? When should you be re- willing to reevaluate? You know, your working title. Yeah, I think the the second question is a little easier than the first, but I'll try to address them both. I mean, <laughs> everybody works differently and has different rhythms. And you know, for example, even at Finch, and we do a lot of naming. And my own personal naming history goes back to the late 90s, my first sort of real job out of college was at a firm that just did naming. And so I have a passion for it. It's my favorite thing to do. It's hard, to your point. Um, And it's always a mix of hope and fear. I mean, the hope is that you come at something that really effectively encapsulates the energy and the positioning and you can get it and go to market with it and it helps. The fear is legal availability and linguistic appropriateness and just the overall challenge of a process like this. So anyway, suffice it to say my my scars are, uh, are are still fresh and have been for 20 years from naming. But everybody works differently. Even within Finch, uh, we have some folks who really thrive in group brainstorming sessions. And I'm not like that. I personally am somebody who prefers to brainstorm independently uh, and use the output from the group sessions. And anyway, t- too much sausage making. Suffice it to say that there's no right answer as to who should be in the room and how they should do it. What there is a little bit of at least guidance on perhaps is what makes a successful name. And to your second question, when to be flexible and sort of reevaluate it. There are a couple different types of names. Um, at its most simple, and this may be overly simple, uh, there are sort of three types, and they all have strengths and weaknesses. Type one, we would call that a neologism. It's a newly created word. It's your Verizon. It's your Exxon. Mm-hmm. It's your Texaco. These, are, these names may have an obvious derivation, but they are... I used all the <laughs> petroleum companies. So <laughs> let's use Verizon as an example, which is, you know, the Latin prefix truth and, and horizon. So true future. It was GTE and Bell Atlantic merged. Uh, there was no chance that either one of those old wireline companies was going to really be the right identity to carry forward into what, what it, even then they knew was a mobile future in the mid to late 90s. Uh, so a new name was developed, Verizon. Now, the good thing about it is 
you can mean you can make it mean what you want it to mean. It was an undisturbed landscape, mm-hmm. and uh, you had an opportunity. Verizon did to define what they wanted it to be. And of course, day one, everyone said, "How do you pronounce this? Verizon or what does this even right. mean? You know, I hate it. It sucks. You know, whatever." And then. As is so often in the naming process, naming is not a thunderbolt from on high and, oh, there it is, we got it. There's one name and it can only be one name and it's the greatest name ever. It's never like that. What it is is finding a name candidate that has enough absence of negatives mm-hmm. and enough that you can sort of build a brand around it. When I was doing naming in the 90s, clients would come and say, I want, I want the next Amazon, I want the next Windows. <laughs> so we understood that. Of course, the response obviously was, you don't want their names, you want their businesses. <laughs> right, right. Um, so anyway, it's important to, to not hold yourself to the standard of the thunderbolt's going to come and the angels are going to sing and holy, holy crap, I have my name. Because it doesn't happen like that. It really doesn't. The best names are those that have the best businesses and brands built around them. But back to the point, neologisms. The, the, the detriment, perhaps, or the challenge of a neologism is that it costs a lot of money to make it mean what you want it to mean. Mm-hmm. And in the absence of your ability to educate the marketplace, they're going to be forming their own conclusions or more likely confused by it. So... In, uh, so the neologism has strengths and weaknesses. The second name sort of type that you see that is predominant is a metaphor. It, it may be a popular word that everybody knows what it means, but you use it out of context to, mm-hmm. you know, Amazon, which was the longest river in the world to, to, to convey selection. Finch, right. mm-hmm. yeah, Finch as well, coming from Darwin and the, the research on finches in the, in the Galapagos. These are metaphors. Um, Jetta is a wind current. You know, for Volkswagen, there's hundreds of examples. But the benefit of that is you can still make it mean what you want it to mean, and it won't be, ugh, you know, I've seen it a hundred times in the category. Nobody asked, asked how to pronounce it. But people know how to pronounce it, yeah. and, and, you know, so metaphors are interesting. The challenge of them is that you still need to sort of tether it to what you're doing so that it makes mm-hmm. some degree of sense. And then, you know, the third name candidate. And it's maybe a lot harder to be found as, as you know, as the first search result, right? That's if true. You're yeah, that's go true. Because it'll be used. Versus a, It'll yeah. be used out of context or in different contexts in a, in a bunch of different a right. bunch of different ways. The third, we would we would say, is more of a descriptive name candidate, a name that you know pretty comes pretty darn close to saying exactly what, what the product yep. does. And then I would say the fourth is more of a proper name. You know, it might be after a place or after a person. So I guess I'll amend that and say there's four. Anyway, strengths and weaknesses to each. Uh, the right name ultimately is based on situational factors in terms of the category, and, and it needs to have some level of, of sort of, you know, connection. Ideally, it says something, and it does a little bit of the work of introducing the company. Ideally, it is easy to spell. Ideally, the domain name is available, or, or a quick workaround is available. Obviously, ideally, uh, the intellectual property is available. And uh, linguistically, it needs to not mean something horrible in another language. We've all heard those stories. Yep. And so these are things that the name needs to do. Now, the right name type or the right specific name for a company is very situational based upon what the company is doing, what the nature of the category is. Are you a first mover with a new innovation? Are you leaning into uh, something different in terms of of what you're providing? Uh, Long answer to an easy question. The second part of your question of, of when to reassess is before you go to market at scale. There may be a time... Um, where you've built a little bit of momentum in a closed community like the entrepreneurial ecosystem or among investors or among, uh, you know, in an HR sense where you have uh, built a little bit of equity in sort of what it is that you're trying to do. There may have been a story or two written about it. You may have raised a couple rounds, whatever. But before you really go to market at scale, uh, that's the time to think differently about it. So I don't like the necessarily, hey, you know, my roommate and I had a pet dog and the dog name was Spot and so we're going to name our company Spot. 
Who knows? You look at the successful companies out there, there's a lot of random proper names that have stories associated with them that are really personal to the founders. And so, again, for a guy in a firm that does a lot of naming, it may be strange to say, but there's certain things the name needs to do, but a, a lot of the success or failure is way beyond what the name does right. or doesn't what do. What do you do post-naming, right? Yeah, totally. So I think naming is important, but again, not something to get stuck on or be paralyzed by. Another thing that we've seen pretty pretty frequently, again, to your point, is Often there are what we call brand architectures, which have to do with how different brand equities within a company fit together, mm-hmm. where there's a corporate name that isn't the product, the lead product name once you go to market. Maybe you want the corporate name to exist uh, in your corporation documents. Maybe you want the corporate name to exist because there may be future directions that the company would take beyond its sort of maiden product concept. So maybe you want a different corporate name from a different lead product. Now, that makes sense in situations where the corporate name isn't asked to do that much. If the corporate name is asked to do a lot when it comes to HR, when it comes to fundraising, when it comes to then it is it doesn't make sense early on to have to build equity in two names simultaneously. That's a diversion of resources and that's a confusing waste of time and resources. But if the corporate name is a, a DBA that's going to exist and sort of be held for later as a larger umbrella uh, into which other concepts may fit or sit down the line, then it may make sense for an, an initial product that has a very specific utilization in a maybe a very specific space to have the ability to narrowly tailor its value to the space and the stakeholder type that it exists to, uh, to impact. So those are meandering thoughts about naming. But yes, naming can be hard. Naming is emotional. Part of the reason I think it's hard, my own hypothesis, is that when it comes to the work that designers do, there's a, there's a skill gap. Most people can't do what they do. Mm-hmm. When it comes to naming, we all know the language. Right. And we all have you know, opinions about it, and that's good. And so within a process, uh, you know, when we're working with clients, it's on us to harvest input, uh, to lead but listen, mm-hmm. and to understand that great ideas can come from all over uh, mm-hmm. the process. It doesn't make sense for us to discourage. I mean, you know, they've hired us and they want us to, to lead, but it doesn't make sense for us to discourage either candidates that were developed internally or if people are really having fun thinking about it, we, we appreciate those yeah. those additions to the process and the right answer in a process I don't care who it comes from or where it comes from I mean there's no pride in authorship and there shouldn't be just because uh, we want the best we want the best outcome so um, when founders are brainstorming and they feel really good about something that in and of itself means something yep yeah great well I think you and I could geek out for a while about about uh, you know branding and naming and 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 marketing topics, but one thing I want to make sure that we we do uh, cover before we we wrap up here in a minute is um, the the issue of stakeholders within the within the healthcare space. Yep. Many of our our listeners are, are working on products that are going to have a whole host of stakeholders, and ultimately they may even end up inside a patient for the rest of their lives, right? Yeah, sure. But the patient may never even know that brand name, right? You may not know whether you have a Medtronic hip or a, mm-hmm. or a uh, J&J hip, right? Um, how do you decide who the most important stakeholders are? Right. Are they the hospitals? Are they the insurers? Are they the surgeons or the nurses, right? Um, and how do you tailor your brand messaging to, the, to multiple sets of stakeholders that have their own sets of concerns? Right. Most... Uh medical devices do not reach the level, nor do they aspire to, nor should they aspire to be an I want my MTV kind of end user poll. So, because the budget's required to do that, 
um, as well as there are very specific uh, categories where where a patient or a consumer may even care. Right. Uh, and, and may even ex- system or something like yeah, that. They yeah, they may even exercise their own. Very few where they would do their own research or exercise their own level of discretion. I mean, it has <clears> to <throat> do with pharmaceuticals, yes, but in the device side, not as much. So. I would, in most cases, not even really worry about end user adoption unless it's going to be there and they're going to be able to access it, and it has to do with how right. they think about themselves and their recovery. And you know, you don't want to, you certainly don't want to name a product cadaver. You know, when you're <laughs> when you're when you're trying to have a, a, a patient trying to get better and working right. hard to get better. So, or you don't want to name a product buzzard. You know, that's geared towards older folks. So, you know, there's obvious. Those are obvious. You don't want to step in it. Stakeholders, we talked about it a little bit earlier. Uh, It helps initially, you you build a map of that chooser and user sort of journey. Who are you selling to? Who's using it? What are the differences? And and, and then who's ultimately using it? What are their differences in needs and motivations and pain points? And if you build a, a real sort of almost brand journey map and you see the world through the lenses of those distinctive stakeholder groups, we go through a process here at Finch called laddering. That, that is really important from a messaging perspective. You start with those needs. And the stakeholders may be different, um, but you, you, know, you sort of diagram what their needs are, and then you continually ladder up, and I won't give you the whole thing, um, until you have a sense of kind of the core emotional terrain that you're occupying. And so assessing those stakeholder needs, but then understanding what are umbrella concepts that span them. That's a mixed metaphor, but umbrella concepts that can encapsulate both yeah. of them. Or, or all three of them, or all four of the stakeholder types, is, is likely where you're going to find fertile branding territory. So in terms of defining which stakeholders are important, again, it's a situational answer, but uh, the end consumer may be as a, huh, don't want to offend them, but they're not actively engaging in a choice. So that's something to think about. But certainly, in, if we're talking about large hospitals, for example, you're dealing with a procurement apparatus, you're dealing with a an operations sort of uh, chain of command that has to do with cost savings and has to do with regulation and has to do with outcomes, all the things that matter to them from a regulatory and a performance perspective. Then uh, on the sort of medical and clinical side, you're dealing with doctors and nurses and everybody in between and and how they uh, treat certain situations, how the actual work gets done in terms of who does what. So choosers, users, building a map of those stakeholders, diagramming and sort of documenting their unique needs and finding terrain where there is both functionally and emotionally those sort of connection points, we have found is an effective way to kind of ladder up to a core brand message that's sound and powerful, that balances the rational with the emotional, and that speaks in the right language simultaneously to the different stakeholders that matter all the way down that path. Great. Thank you. Well, that's probably uh, as as good a note to end on as, as any. But Bill, I want to really thank you for your time. It's been a, a it's great a pleasure. Conversation. I could go I, forever. I hope our listeners are enjoying this conversation <laughs> as much as I am. I could go forever on one answer. So well, uh, thanks for uh, giving uh, me you and I can do that separately. We'll yeah. let our, we'll let our listeners off the hook. But Fair enough. I really appreciate your time. No, my pleasure. And that's our show for today. Remember, if you enjoyed Bill's perspective on branding, there's a lot more where that came from. So be sure to check out his podcast, Real World Branding, with Bill Gullen. And if your company needs help with the things we talked about today from an excellent team of brand experts, head to finchbrands.com and get in touch with Bill and his team. Our show is produced right here in the Smithwise Philly office. Our theme music is composed and personally curated by the Polish Ambassador. Thanks to Bill for making time to be our guest. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Netflix.